0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. Mostly it's indie pop, but this week it's going to be about a club in New York City. It was the Mud Club in the tribeca area um this ran from 1978 to 1983 by and was owned by steve mass and it featured all those new york punk bands as well as lots of other bands as well that traveled through that time i could tell you what what they are but or who they were but you'll you'll know them because frankly it's well documented but there was you know CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, and uh, this, the Mud Club. So I spoke to Richard Bosch, who recently brought out a book um, all about the history of the club, which is fantastic, by the way, um, and some great photographs as well. He worked there as a young 25-year-old, and um, being obsessed about details, I managed to track him down in New York. No one's safe. Anyway, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting subject that was his early years and, uh, yes, those formative times. And this was Richard's response. Richard, take it away.
1: I was. I was in my early
0: to mid-20s. Yes, when that happened, which is really young. I mean, when you meet probably those sort of people now, that age. I, mean, I was you doing
1: think- this job. I was doing the door when I was 25 years old.
0: Yeah, and, and and when you meet a 25-year-old now, you probably think, God, I was that age. <laughs> I do
1: think that.
0: It's a bit weird because you think, wow, I really held that together. But yeah, so what was your own formative years, you know, from like the the early, you know, like, I don't know, where you start to remember things like when you were about 10, 11, what was, what were you doing, you know, what was your childhood like?
1: Well, I grew up on Long Island. Um... About twenty miles outside the city, outside outside of Manhattan, um, I was an only child. I had a good I had a good childhood. Um, my parents were uh, were kind. They um, gave me pretty much everything I wanted. They were. You know, they were a bit strict with me, but at the same time, they allowed me the freedom that you know, so I could enjoy myself. Yeah, I didn't start getting into trouble really until I was maybe 15 or 16. And by trouble, at that point, it was still kind of innocent trouble. You know, I would sneak out and go to the city with friends at night and try to see a concert, or I would cut school in the daytime and <clears throat> go into the village, into Greenwich Village, and hang out in Washington Square Park or or the East Village, St. Mark's Place, or we would go to free concerts in Central Park. Yes. You know, uh, that's pretty much it. I have, I still have, I'm still in touch with friends who I knew from my neighborhood when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, even younger. Yes. And, And some
0: of those friends even showed up at the mud club. Excellent. And were you sort of one of those, you know, I mean, we've seen the Martin Scorsese type films. Were you quite a kid who could duck and dive and was quite sort of a bit of a hustler? Or was, was that not like what you were like?
2: No, I was. Um, I was basically I always wanted to hang out with the cool
1: kids I did what I needed or what I thought I needed to fit in with the cool kids. You know, sometimes when I wound up in the thick of things in a good way, I was surprised to be in the center of it all.
2: Yes.
1: And, uh, you know, in high school, I, you know, I had, I had a lot of friends. I don't know if I, I, to say i was popular i don't know if that's an apt description but you know i was i was involved i was the art editor of the of my high school paper i um i was involved in sports swimming mostly i swam competitively i had a lot of friends through that again several of them who are still my friends today i mean i got an email from somebody i've known since gee 1968 maybe we we swam together and he lives in Connecticut now uh, we still stay in touch he was actually one of the first people I ever went with to the mud club prior to working there
0: yes um so it was um so was did you were you at that period where you know because there was a sort of the musical moment where things just started to really explode did you sort of find yourself sort of being swept up in that kind of excitement of the kind of the hippie kind of culture
1: the initial excitement i was swept in swept up in was was the psychedelic bands of the 60s when i was in junior high and high school i mean of course i loved the rolling stones and i loved the beatles and i loved the velvet underground and i loved the jefferson airplane and those were basically the bands i loved when i was 13 and 14 years old even 15 years old um you know, I started to explore other kinds of music, but basically I didn't really um discover the music that sort of changed my life in a way, this scene around CBGBs in Max's Kansas City until I was until I was maybe 20 years old. Right. And uh, yeah, because you know that we're talking 1975. I mean, CBGBs really peaked in popular where there were lines down the block and, you know, we would always slide in because we were going there rather frequently and the same with Max's. But, you know, it's, it's, it was, um it was interesting. You know, I felt like as a child, and when I say a child, as a 13 year old, to discover bands like the Rolling Stones and the Jefferson Airplane and, Bands like Quicksilver Messenger Service and all these bands that to me were very wild at the time. It was almost when CPGBs rolled around and the scene on the Bowery, it was almost as if lightning had struck twice. Mm. Like I had not only had the privilege of seeing some of these early, what we now call classic rock bands in their in the first five or seven years that they were out there making music, now I was seeing these bands, I was catching these bands before they even had their first record out. And it was truly a revelation. I mean, you know, I mean, seeing bands like, I mean, Patti Smith or seeing bands like Television or Talking Heads or Blondie, I mean, seeing Blondie at CBGBs, or the Ramones at CBGBs. I mean, when they literally were blowing the doors off the place. I mean, it was just incredibly powerful. And you know, they were. There was talk. This one was getting a record deal, and that one was going to have a record come out. You know, I have to be honest. I feel I kind of feel differently about it today, but. I can remember when Horses came out, Patty Smith's first album. That would have been in late 1975, I think October 75, maybe. And going to see that band in its in its that first full band in its first incarnation with that foursome of Richard Soule and Lenny Kay and J.D. Doherty and Ivan Kral. I mean, that record and that band. I can honestly say for me and I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and say for many people, changed everything. I mean, it just, it just, it was radical. I mean, it was as, Patti, bands like Patti Smith and the Ramones were as radical as some of these no wave bands like, like Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and the Contortions and DNA, I yes. mean. They were, you know, the Ramones were radical. You know, The Horses was a radical album at the time. Um, you know, that first Blondie album, its it sort of straddled this fence between this sort
2: of very subversive kind of spin on pop, and it was very
1: heavy, and it was very in-your-face punk. I mean... You know, today we see images of Debbie Harry and we don't think of her in the same way that we think of, like, John Lydon or The Clash or, you know, Susie Sue. But Debbie Harry was a total punk. I mean, she was like, that was some crazy stuff going on. Yes. And all of those bands were amazing. I mean, and then
2: from CBGBs by the late 70s, You know, the, the Mud Club, the Mud Club opened and the C, CBGBs didn't really just,
1: it didn't, CBGBs didn't end and then it went to the Mud Club. Max's didn't end and then it went to the Mud Club. Those, those places were more like venues where you would know you were going to see a show at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at midnight or one o'clock and maybe you would even show see a show at 2 30 in the morning and that's what it was there was a lineup every night what what the mud club sort of changed was a lot of those faces and a lot of the sounds from cbgb's and max's were the sounds of the mud club whether they were performing there or we were just by that time then playing their records but what the Mud Club, what was different about the Mud Club, it was never your typical venue, meaning what happened at the Mud Club was, was whatever happened during the course of a night. You went to the Mud Club, really, to go to the Mud Club rather than to see a band. And wow. if there was a band playing, that was just gravy. That was just, you know, the cherry on top. Yeah, yeah. And, uh
0: you know, so just, just briefly then, because, you know, you were there. I mean, New York gets that idea that, you know, it's, it's quite bankrupt and, and it was kind of going badly downhill sort of in so many ways. And places like the Bowery, where the um, CBGBs was, was a sort of really dodgy dive. I and mean, in Max's, probably not much better. So. We get that kind of impression that new york is is quite a sort of it's it's not what it is today and uh, or what it was like in the 90s and and beyond so what what was your memory of, of that kind of scene like because and also at the same time it was kind of interesting because because you had that punk scene happening but then you know i always think oh yeah but then we had the eagles we had Fleetwood mac mac with Mac, and then we had um, you know the prog rock people like Yes and Genesis, and you know this overblown orchestral stuff with Emerson Lake and Palmer with these huge trucks, you know, with three guys and their sort of you know especially you know commissioned rugs to stand on stage. So it was kind of such a polar opposite. And I just wondered how you were sort of wondering or thinking about other things around that time.
2: Well in
1: terms of the bands you just mentioned and the type of music you just mentioned i mean by the by the mid 70s by the time cbg the scene of cbg was, was exploding in new york the new york underground rock scene the punk scene was exploding on the bowery and then it then it then it began exploding in in the uk in london you know i mean my opinion of those bands like Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and Phil Collins and what's Peter Gabriel and
2: that, all that kind of stuff. I just thought it was, I just thought it was total middle of the road, um, commercial. Rock i mean i won't even i won't even say rock and roll it yes. was like it was just
1: rock and it was um you know it was artistically it seemed of little consequence it it took it took no chances it it
2: it it never went out on a limb it never uh <laughs> in day sorry about that no it was just one of those fake phone calls that
1: we get today Oh yes. um you know spam a uh-huh. spam call um you know i thought it was a little consequences there was no there was no courage to that music um i think you know when people were laying it all on the line and getting up on that tiny little stage at cbgb's and sometimes playing in front of 20 people, and sometimes playing in front of 320 people, packed in like sardines, you know, there was a there was a DIY, a do-it-yourself energy that propelled the whole scene. You know, it might have been rough around the edges, but it was incredibly beautiful and You know, sometimes I mean, I can remember standing at the standing near the bar at CBGB's and just feeling compelled to push myself through the crowd or push myself down the aisle and just get get up there as close as possible. Sometimes, you know, you you would. You would feel like you just threw your head back and laughed out loud because it was so good. That was, it was like a natural response to feel that way, like, oh, you would feel like, oh my God, this is amazing.
2: Yes,
1: And, um, you know, I, I never felt like that from any of those other bands, except again, going back to those bands I loved in my childhood, like the Rolling Stones. Um, you know, I mean, it was the same kind of discovery, that I had when I listened to some of those early Stones records on a record player with with the kids in the neighborhood in someone's basement. It was the same kind of like, whoa, goosebumps. This is amazing. You know, laughing and screaming and jumping around in the basement. It was the same vibe that you had jumping around in front of the stage or at the bar at CBGB's. Yes.
0: And did you, I mean, at that stage, I mean, did those three main clubs and was Studio 54, was that also happening at the same time? Or was it was. That- Studio 54 opened in the spring of 1977. Right. The Mud Club opened about 18 months
1: later in, on Halloween of 1978. CBGB's had been open since 74, but it sort of peaked around the summer of 1976, meaning when it just became insane. Yes. And uh, Max's was sort of like this institution that had been going since the mid, since 1965, but it underwent many changes over the years. The biggest change, of course, was when Mickey Ruskin left in 1975 and opened... uh, you know, opened his next place, which I forget the timeline. It was either the Locale, which was only there for a minute, right off Washington Square Park. But then his next big venue or venture was the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club, which that was the summer of 75, I believe. And, you know, so... And then Max's... After Mickey left, Max's really... became you know, gave gave punk rock and no wave a home. Yes. Um it really did. It gave it didn't give them a home and it was a hangout, but it also gave them a stage to perform on, just the way CBGB's was.
0: And and did New York, you know, from the you know, from various documentaries and things I read, was it what was your experience of New York at that time? Did it feel as a young person in a city, did it feel like, wow, this is this is quite apocalyptic, not apocalyptic, but did it feel like it was quite run down? Well, you know, I was just
1: talking with someone about that the other day. And we were trying to put it into context of what's currently going on between COVID and economics and politics and all of that. New York, to me, in the mid to late 70s, and on the cusp of those two decades, 70s and 80s, I never got the vibe. I never felt like I walked down the street and would be like, "Ooh, uh, what? Look out! Don't go over there. This and that." For me, I just thought New York was incredible. It was just marvelous. I mean, there was—it offered. There was a there was a palpable sense of energy. Because. New York, in its decline during that period, or its decay, if you will, offered a great freedom and a great, a a huge amount of opportunity, meaning in that decline, young people could come to the city and find an apartment for $100 a month or a 175. I mean, my first apartment was on Bleecker Street, about four blocks west of CBGVs. And that was in 1976. That was the, my, fir- my first real apartment. And it was a one-bedroom apartment and we paid 175 I shared it with someone and we paid $175 a month. And, um, you know, I don't know how I could possibly... Move into the city today. If I was a a 21 year old as I was then,
0: yes. 22
1: year old, and try to find a place. I mean now, now, now a dumpy apartment is well. I mean rents have gone down with COVID, but now a dumpy apartment is eighteen hundred dollars a month, and that's for a studio apartment. You know, a decent apartment, oh for goodness sakes, a one bedroom on Bleecker Street would be. Would be three thousand dollars a month.
0: Yes, I know rent rent. It, it's a killer, creative killer, really, isn't it? So when, it it, so with with the Mud Club, were you there when it it sounded like you were there when it started? When exactly. when you know when you saw the posters, did you think, oh, new club in town?
1: Well, it was sort of a version of that. I um I took that apartment the summer of nineteen seventy six on Bleecker Street. In the fall of nineteen seventy seven. I just moved out, vacated the Bleecker Street apartment because I had found a loft in Tribeca. It wasn't even called Tribeca then. I had found a loft down below Canal Street, which Canal Street was sort of the southern border of the Soho district. And it was really far downtown. And I would would walk down there and I'd walk back to the village and I think, oh, gosh. No one's ever gonna come and visit me down here. This is so far away, but it was was 2,200 square feet and it was raw space. It had 13 windows, Three, three exposures, 13 windows. It was a beautiful building. It was right off City Hall Park. Subway stations, perfect for transportation. Unbeknownst to me, a year later, the Mud Club would open a few blocks away. But I took, as I say in the book, I took a leap of faith. As I said the book, my book, The Mud Club. As I say in the book, I took a leap of faith. And I, my roommate from Bleecker Street and I signed a lease for $400 a month. And we didn't know, we had no idea how we were going to pay that rent. Yes. Uh, a few years later, I wound up buying that loft because there was a whole situation with the building and the building changed hands and we had a strong tenants organization. But regardless of that, I, um, I bought that loft and I lived in that loft from 1977 until 2005, 28 years. And I lived in that loft when I worked at the mud club, the way I discovered the mud club and the way I discovered, I used to buy pot, weed from this woman named Sonny, who lived on, Mac, in, in, on McDougal Street in the village, the famous McDougal Street. And I was over Sunny's one night, I think it was with Richard Saul from, from the Patti Smith group, and she also sold subway slugs which were, like, fake subway tokens. Oh, right. She, she sold them, like, on the cheap. So, you know, like, if, if the subway ride cost 50 cents, you could buy subway slugs from Sonny for, like, probably, like, 10 of them for a, a dollar. And <laughs> she also sold pot. And there, another friend of ours, this guy Yolo, was there. And he said, oh, this band, the B-52s, are playing at this place downtown um, that's just opening and we're all going to go and it, it was the mud it was in fact the mud club and the b52s played there on opening night they were they had one they had a, they had the rock lobster single out on on i think db records as a single they had only played in new york maybe once or twice before at cb's and at max's kansas city and that was the night the mud club sort of it had been open for it had been open for a few private events, without a liquor
2: license, in the weeks leading up to Halloween. But the B fifty two has really put that
1: place on the map that opening night, and uh, I talk about it in the book. I think I even have a reproduction of the invitation yes. for the in the book, and I think that the. the Cover charge was $2.52 with a nod towards the B-52s. So that was, by that time I had been living on Murray Street. I had been working as a bartender in Soho. And after that, I would always walk home. Maybe it was about a 12 block walk. And I would always veer off track a little and go like a block and a half to the east still in the direction of heading downtown and heading home. But I wound up stopping in at the mud club all the time. And it was just one of those places. That that B-52s night, that was just chaos. You know, it was like, as I say in the book, people remember being there even if they weren't.
2: (laughs) And, um, you
1: know, it's almost, it's so, it's mythic. And, um, but I would like, Stop in and I'd walk through those doors and I felt like I didn't want to leave at the end of the night. And I was compelled. I didn't just want to go back the next night. I was compelled to go back the next night. It that place felt like home from the minute I walked in. You know, as I again not referring to the book all the time, but you know, I saw people that I knew there. I saw faces that I recognized. I saw faces that I never had seen before, but I wanted to get to know. It was just the mix was fascinating. The music was great. The dance floor was really hopping. And, uh, you know, we'd go to see bands there once in a while. Sometimes I'd go with a group of friends. This is before it really became the mad, scene that happened outside, which is basically when I got hired to work there. Um, There was a door scene of sorts in place. Um, Meaning there was a door person, security people, sort of, sort of security people. Um, But that's how I got to really be feel comfortable with the medical. My friend, Jane, Jane Friedman, who runs an, a nonprofit in the city called Howl Arts, it was actually the place where we did my uh, book launch. And she was Patti Smith's first manager. She managed a lot of different bands. She managed Frank Zappa, John Kale. Um, Jane always, when I talked to Jane about this kind of thing, she always says, of course it felt like home. We le- We lived in those places. Yes. you know, whether it be CBs, Maxes, or mud, you know, that's, that's, that's where we spent our time. We, we were there every night. And, you know, how could it not feel like home?
0: And so, and so was it quite soon that you sort of got employed there and sort of became part of the, uh, the management? Not, not it was
1: management. open almost four months when I got my job there. I got my job there in, in, I I believe it was the third week of March of 1979. It opened on the last day of October of 1978. And the owner was a guy named Steve Mass. He and I did not really know one another, but Steve was the kind of person,
2: if you had his ear, he believed everything you would tell him. So... A dear
1: friend of mine, you know, I keep friends for a long time. Um, this friend, I'm the godfather to her daughter. She, I just spoke to her on the phone a couple of days ago. We saw each other for lunch two weeks ago. She was writing for the Soho Weekly News at the time. And she wrote an article about the Mud Club because she said, I have to write this article because before someone else does, no one had really written about the Mud Club yet. There were some photographs of the scene outside on the street in the New York Times, but no one had really written about it. So Steve Mass called her up and said, Oh, what did you do? You wrote this article. It's going crazy now. This one can't get in. That one can't get in. And she said in a very off-handed way, Oh, you should call Richard um, to do the, I need, he said I need someone to do the door on the weekends. She said, I'll call Richard. And he was like, Richard who? And she said, oh, Richard Bach. Um, she said, he knows everybody. <laughs> so, which was not really a truth. It was more, I knew who everybody was right. rather than actually knew everyone. So she calls me up. This is in the days, no, there was no technology. There wasn't even call waiting. Yes. Hardly anyone even had an answering machine. She calls me up. She said, Steve Mass is going to call you right now. And she just hung up the phone. Click. And literally, within 30 seconds, the phone rang again. And this voice, Oh, hello, Richard, this is Steve Mass. And he said, Pat Wadsley. That's my friend Pat. Pat Wadsley tells me you know everybody. (laughs) And, you know, usually I talk and sometimes I say too much but for some by some miracle i just kept my mouth shut and listened and he said i need someone to do the door on friday and saturday nights come to see me tomorrow night which would have been a friday and before i even i said what well, i said well steve i have a job in soho i tend bar i was tending bar at this sort of fancy cabaret where we were making lots of money. There were two shows a night, you know, it was, um, and I said, I had a job, just come and see me um, before midnight. And then he just hangs up and I'm like, okay, something told me that just get someone to fill in for your shift tomorrow night and go see this guy. So I go to the mud club, midnight, Friday night, just getting started. Sometimes we didn't even open the doors till midnight. And I asked the woman taking the $2 cover or $3 cover at the door, whatever it might've been on a Friday night, said, I'm looking for Steve Mass. She pointed and he was at the bar talking to someone. I knew who he was, but I just wanted to know where he was. And I stand there for a few minutes, totally ignoring me. And finally I say, Steve, it's Richard. And he looks at me, sort of gives me like a once over and says, be here tomorrow night at midnight and returns to his conversation with this other guy and just leaves me standing there. So something, I I left, I didn't even have a drink. I didn't stay, I was too
2: weird. I uh, headed for the West Village to go out somewhere over there. And I thought,
1: okay, this is either going to be really bad or really good. <laughs> oh, so I got someone else to to fill in my shift Saturday night. And I show up there. I don't even think he told anybody that he had hired me, if that's what he had really done during the course of that Thirty-second job interview, if that's what it had been. Yes, and and there I was. You know, the Friday and Saturday nights turned into five to seven nights a week for nearly the next two years.
0: Wow! And, and I and, never and left. What was he, and what was he like as a character once you got to know him?
2: He was a character. He was um, he was a genius. He was the master of irony. In the sense that so much
1: of what we did at the Mud Club was so totally ironic, or in a sense, so politically incorrect that we could never get away with it today. Like, we could never get away with having a, a war games party with a giant American flag on the front of the building and the building f- painted in a camouflage motif and a big giant Hiroshima nuclear cloud on the wall inside that said nuke them till they glow we could never have today we can never get away with that today we could never get away with having a Joan Crawford Mother's Day party I mean this may be a little dated at this time but you know it was sort of a mommy dearest Mother's Day party where you know she had that volatile relationship with her child who wrote that awful tell-all book about her and mm-hmm. uh But, I mean, we had a Joan Crawford Mother's Day party that I I wouldn't even begin to tell you the things it said on the invitation. Um, You know, I mean, you can't do that today. Everyone would be so totally offended where we just thought it was the funniest thing in the world back then. You know, we had the dead rock stars party. So all of those had Steve's imprint on them. The flip side of that, he liked to throw grenades into the situation. He liked to, for instance, on a crazy Saturday night, he would like to come out to the door and whisper in my ear, no leather jackets tonight. And you would like, you know, like 30% of the people outside have on leather motorcycle jackets. Um, Or he would say, he would say something like, no long hair no one no rock stars tonight and you know and then like okay so david bowie pulls up in a car he was a regular he was there every night he was in town i mean you're not you're not going to say no to these people you're not going to say no to iggy pop when he comes uh you know barreling out of a cab with someone. You're not gonna say no to Johnny Thunders when he comes staggering up to the door. Um, It's not gonna happen. But that's what Steve liked to do. Um, He was also, there was also an innocence about him in the sense that, I mean, sometimes I'd introduce him to people because I made my doorman job more than just being the doorman. Like if someone came who I felt was important, I would bring them inside and introduce them to Steve. And sometimes he would look at me after he'd buy them a drink or I'd buy them a drink and we'd talk for a chat for a minute or two with the person. He would say to me, what are they doing here? And I would say, Steve, it's the mud club.
0: You know, I mean, it, it
1: was the hottest game in town.
0: And, you know, so- did you feel there was any, I mean, was were people sort of aware of, you know, like the CBGV's things and Biddy Biddy Crystal and also Max's as well? Was there was there a sort of an interesting little friendly rivalry between the t- those particular clubs as well as No,
1: not the- between those clubs. There was not. Because the the Mud Club, the Mud Club went late. The Mud Club was still serving drinks at four o'clock in the morning downstairs on the dance floor, and then the second floor, which was in a sense, kind of VIP-ish. It was never called the VIP floor or VIP lounge or the VIP room, but it had sort of—you know—you had to get past someone else who might have been doing the the chain to go up the stairs to get up there. And sometimes we would serve—we'd be serving liquor up there till five, five thirty in the morning, when the da- when all the lights would be on on the dance floor and the first floor would be closed. Um, So the the mud club, my point is the mud club was a place to come after. So even if you saw Blondie or Talking Heads or the Dead Boys or whoever at CBGB's and they finished at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning was prime time to arrive at the mud club. Right. Nobody arrived at the mud club at 11 or 12 o'clock. Only the the only the out of towners or what we called in those days the bridge and tunnel people arrived at mud at midnight because they thought it would better their chances of getting in.
0: Right. <laughs> yes, interesting, isn't it? And how were you and how were you coping with this new lifestyle with this with this kind of buzz of, you know, I mean obviously <laughs> The, the kind of the people you were meeting the amount of drinking probably drugs as well i mean were you sort of able to navigate that as a mid 20 something
1: to a degree um, i was still always in the i was i was still always kind of i i always kind of had a kind of disbelief that i was that i was there that i was that i had this job my ego started to get a little out of control sometimes. That wasn't helped by the amount of drugs I began consuming and the, uh, the amount of alcohol I was consuming during the course of the night. I mean, I sort of embraced my bad behavior as I grew into bad behavior. And I was so, at the same time, I was sort of embraced for my bad behavior. Um, people tended to give you drugs at the door, thinking that was going to, you know, or you'd let somebody in, or you'd let somebody in free as a comp, and, uh, they would hand you a couple of quaaludes, they would hand you a folded up $20 bill with some cocaine inside, they would, you know, say, yeah, come inside, let me buy you a drink. And, you know, no one needed to buy me a drink. I could just go up to the bar and ask for a drink. But that would give me an excuse to go inside and have a drink with them. Or, and then they'd say maybe, you know, hey, is there somewhere we can go and do a few lines? And I would say, sure. And we'd either go into the bathroom and I'd clear out the bathroom and lock the door. Or I would, or we'd go down to the basement. And I mean, everybody went down. Everybody went down to that basement with me to, uh, to just sit and chill out, to do a few lines, to smoke a joint, to do whatever, to have sex. Um, it was, um, so I coped. I hung on. I, by the second year, I was hanging on because I knew, even though I never dreamed I would write a book about it something told me that the job was important and something told me that people were gonna remember this time, but again, not in the sense that books would be written about it or would almost be like a badge of courage or a sign of cred to drop the mud club name even 40 years later. (laughs) Um, You know, it's kind of remarkable. But something told me what I was doing was important. And I managed to stay at the Mud Club for nearly two years. Yes. As an employee.
0: It's the interesting thing that I've noticed doing this show, especially, you know, I suppose creeping into the 80s, that there were these gatekeepers, you know, there were in the UK, you know, we had people like John Peel, who was this particular DJ who loved to play new bands. And it was the Ramones and the Dam that he played where he suddenly realised that the days of putting The Grateful Dead on the show was kind of gone. You know, suddenly that Ramones record, the damned, it was like punk yeah. is here, and that's that's now going to be filed into the archives. And then we, so we had people like him who would do the, you know, do the sort of uh, the airwaves on the radio, sort of for those who wanted new music. Then you had the music press, and in this country, you know, we had the NME and Melody Maker. So, so then and every town had a small kind of club you know night which was often sort of at the beginning of the week more than at the end of the week where people you know they thought well look no one wants this club on a monday or tuesday wednesday so we'll let you know the alternative indie night happen you know during that period so there were kind of like really good places and 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 spaces for new bands to be sort of heard and and seen so obviously the mud club you also had this incredibly, apart from the punk scene, you had this incredibly avant-garde scene as well, didn't you? Because you had this jazz, which was quite, you know, discordant jazz, which was kind of, obviously this was the perfect place for it. So for those audience members, this must have been perfect for, for them to come and see this kind of music. Very much so. I mean, the you know, the mic club, people
1: refer to it as a punk club. Sometimes people say... I remember, I know a photographer who refers to it. Uh, he started taking pictures at the new punk club on White Street. And yes, a lot of the punks from CBGBs or even the Brits, when they'd come over, would hang at mud or would it would be their first stop even before CBs or Maxis. Um, but we had a we cast a wide net when it came to the talent that we featured. I mean, we had, as much as we had people like the Talking Heads playing live or Lena Lovitch playing live or um, Lizzie Mercier playing live, or we have, we had these classic acts like Sam and Dave performing live. um, you know, um, these, these great soul bands, like we had uh, these funk bands, we had the Brides of Funkenstein, we even had Mary Wells do a show, two, do two shows at the Mud Club. I mean, Mary Wells toured with the Beatles in 1964, she was their opening act. Yes. Um, we had Marianne Faithful do that, probably the most famous night at the Mud Club was when Marianne Faithful did a show. I mean, it was a total crash and burn. But no one cared. It was such an amazing night. And then we also had, on the flip side of that, we had people like Philip Glass who performed at the Mud Club. We had William Burroughs who did a reading at the Mud Club. We had the filmmaker Kenneth Anger, Scorpio Rising. Uh, you know, all those films do a film presentation at the Mud Club. We had, um, you know, there were all we had. We did poetry readings at the Mud Club. Uh, You know, we had these no wave bands. We had all different kind of things go on there um, that were not punk in any sense of the way. It was almost sort of punk to have the balls to put these people on stage in front of like a crowd. There's what's going on. I mean, Frank Zappa performed at the Mud Club. Nico performed at the Mud Club. I mean, everybody performed at the Mud Club. This is a little tidbit that's interesting, and it has, I think it has something to do with how we cast such a wide net, especially at the beginning. Steve Mass, the owner, shared a flat on 8th Street in the village with Brian Eno for the first year or so that the Mud Club was open until Brian went back to uh, England. It was when he was producing the Talking Heads records, but then he, you know, he started producing everybody. But Brian used to come down to the mud club and hang out in the early days. And, you know, I think Brian's relationship with a lot of these avant-garde bands had a lot to do with, you know, the vibe of the mud club early on.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's interesting because you had people like the great John Lowry, didn't you? And yeah. Arto yeah. Lindsay, and uh, yes, and and but you also mixed it, like you said, the writers, but also you had the painters like Vasquez um, as well, didn't you, who obviously oh. added a certain kudos to it. So then on a personal level, what happened for you then in your second year when you you decided you needed to have a break? You know,
1: to this day, I don't know if that was a good decision or a bad decision. I don't know if... In a way, I started to think that if I stay here much longer, this job is going to kill me. And I meant that literally. At the same time, um, I wasn't making great decisions because of the amount of drugs I was consuming. I was still great at my job. That That I will never have any different kind of opinion
2: about. I did a great job until the day I left. And, you know, Steve Mass never
1: told me that in the years I worked there or the years since. And then in 2015, we worked on a project together, he and I. And he was always someone who always avoided your gaze as well. But in
2: 2015, we were working on this benefit for the Bowery Mission. And... he he looked at me and said, you really did a great job at the mud club. And you know,
1: he had never said that to me before. And it really, he said, you really were the doorman, meaning that there were other people who did the door before me and after me, but no one lasted longer than maybe a couple people lasted six months. Sometimes people would last like six weeks and I lasted two years and you know that was really important for me to me that he said that yes um I think I could have stayed longer I think he was terribly hurt when I told him I was leaving um he wanted to know how much they were paying me because I went somewhere else foolishly I said it's a done deal when it didn't have to be um but again, going back to my original thought, I was afraid that that job was just going to kill me. And it actually turned out to be the next job that almost killed me. And meaning because of my behavior and my the amount of alcohol and drugs I was consuming
0: at the time. Yes. So look, with most scenes, which is always quite interesting, whether it was the 60s, the punk, even a bit of glam rock, and definitely in the... say 80s, you know, you have the indie, you know, most things have a couple of really good years or most scenes have a couple of good years and then things don't hold it together. So what was the kind of narrative with the Mud Club and why did it sort of come to an end in the end? Mm -hmm. Well,
2: I think in the sense that the Mud Club opened its doors and within a month or so,
1: It was burning so bright and so hot that for it to maintain that level of heat, if you will, that level of excitement, that amount of buzz, it was unsustainable. The first two years, 1979, the summer of 1979, was a dream at the Mud Club. It was just unbelievable. All of 1980 was just incredible. You know, by 81, he started to have to play sort of a new game in a way. Things were changing. Hip-hop and rap were coming into focus. Um, Graffiti. And a lot of these kids who came to New York to be artists and were hanging out at the Mud Club started to become successful artists. I mean, Basquiat and Keith Haring are the prime examples of that. And, you know, so he opened up another floor above that second floor, that VIP-ish second floor, where he had an art gallery. He started doing art shows. He started to poach a few people, from a place called club 57 to work at the mud club thinking that by cross pollinating he may keep the place fresh you know for me i was never able to stop going there because i stopped working there didn't mean i stopped going there Mm. and steve would have never tried to steve was of the mindset where If it was over, it was over. And he would tell me when I was working, I don't want that person in anymore. I don't want that person in. He never did that. He never did that with me. Um, So I was still always going there. And then what really changed was by 1982, well, by the end of 81, the Mud Club started to become another CBGBs or another Max's Kansas City. There were ads in the Village Voice and the Soho Weekly News every week for bands that were playing there every night, you know, with the cover charge listed. Mm. So that sort of, that totally changed the dynamic. And as I say in the book, and it's funny, someone just stole this line from me in an interview. (laughs) It's, it's it's such a truth though I, by 1982 well, the cool people had stopped going there they had moved on and you know sometimes I'd be coming home from elsewhere and I would pass like the corner and you could see the mud club like a few doors in sometimes there'd be no one outside, sometimes there wouldn't even be a door person outside and it got to the point where I didn't even ask the cab to stop Because usually if I was coming home from somewhere, I would tell the cab, stop. I want to stop at Broadway and White. I'm going to get out there. Yeah. And I would go to the mud club and have a drink or two. And then I'd walk home from there because I was only a few blocks south. But by 1982, I wasn't asking the cab to stop anymore. And the mud club kind of limped into 1983. And then it was over.
0: Blimey. It does happen, doesn't it?
1: It happens, yeah.
0: It does happen.
1: But it was so brilliant, it was so intensely brilliant for for that period of time, for that two, two and a half year period of time, that it it would like like anything, it would be impossible to maintain that.
0: Yes. So what happens to like Steve and what happens to you just briefly? post this period, because obviously you went and worked in other clubs. Did you, did you keep in that world, you know, of clubs, or did you have to sort of... I kept
1: of... in that world through the, um, through the mid, through the early mid-80s. Then I had to chill out and clean up my act, which I did. And then by the late 80s, I was back as a general manager of a club in Midtown um that again was again was one of these places that lasted for about four years (laughs) and the first two years burned incredibly bright and hot and I left there after two years and then I sort of took a job that was a bit more sedate now mind you all this time I was painting and trying to move things forward on that level but I was always very pragmatic and very practical in the sense that I knew I had to pay the bills, and I had enough experience in clubs and these places that had really reputations, whether the reputation was notorious or just whether the reputation was like it was a marquee name. Yes. Um, that I was getting good jobs, and i I took a job in the nineties that I lasted that I stayed at for about eight years as a gen- as a general manager again. It was a very sort of posh place uptown on the east side where a lot of like Hollywood and news people would come. And I sort of slightly reinvented myself for that. And then I came back downtown. I got a job working in a place that was open till like four o'clock in the morning as a night manager a few nights a week. I was sort of a hired gun. They paid me very, very well to work three nights a week there. was very loud very crowded but I had the experience to handle that
2: and then that was it um then I I bought my place upstate New York in
1: Kinderhook where I live now 2005 I sold that
2: loft that was a few blocks from the mud club I um I started focusing more on
1: art. I have a studio here. And then in 2009, there was a mud club reunion, a 30 year reunion. I had some dive on the Lower East Side, a bar. And my friend who I'm again, still friends with today, she, she wanted to write. She said, we should write a book about the mud club. I was like, okay. And then I told my other friend that someone wants me to write a book with them about the mud club. And this other friend, like, she literally screamed at me, like wagging her finger and yelling at me saying, you can't write this book with so-and-so. This is your story. You have to write this book. And she said, now, tell me something you've said to people when they were standing outside waiting to get in. And I thought for a minute, and I said, I would say to them, if you've been standing here for more than 10 minutes, you're not getting in. <laughs> and, and that was sort of, I made that statement from time to time to sort of thin the crowd, because sometimes it would get a couple hundred people waiting to get in. Yes. And she said, okay, that's the first line of your book. Now start writing. And that was in 2010. And that's when I started writing the book. And that, that line remained the first line of the book through numerous drafts and numerous revisions over the course of the next six years as I, as I researched and interviewed and.
0: Yes. T- so so, so they so searched you- and all of that. So the 30th um, anniversary was your, the catalyst for, for starting that. And then what about someone like Steve? Who Steve, is the...
1: um, Steve had moved to Berlin. He had opened a mud club in Berlin, which was more sort of like a bar, coffee house, cabaret. Um, from what I understand, I never went there. It remained open for a
2: few years. It's been closed for well over 10 years. Steve came back to New York. All of a sudden, Steve's back in New York. This is 2015. Um, And he's, wants to do
1: this charitable benefit called a mud club rummage sale.
2: And this big hotel downtown put them up, set them up to do this
1: night in their club room downstairs. Um, I was, he reached out to me as well as another half a dozen mud club denizens
2: um, to be on the committee to do this benefit, the benefit committee.
1: And we had this wildly successful, where we raised like $50,000 for the the Bowery Mission, which is a homeless shelter on the Bowery. It's famous, it's been there forever. And then after that, Steve was very gung-ho that he and I should do some things together. And I was also very gung-ho and excited to be working with him again. So we were like, yes, great, let's do more things. I had some ideas. We met with a few people, some mud club people, some people who remained very well connected. But Steve wanted to go off in a different
2: direction. So we did another event in 2016 that was not successful. And I worked really hard on it that night, but
1: Steve wanted it to be a benefit, but the cause was dubious. We didn't have it wasn't really as clear-cut as the Bowery Mission benefit. And it failed. I mean, there were people people came because people still loved the mud club, people still loved Steve, people I was still connected to so many people. So Steve sort of disappeared again after that. I think he tried to do one more. I did not get involved. Um, because I just didn't like the way it was going. And he went back to Berlin to sort of close things up. He had an apartment back there. And he's been living in the States.
2: He's been living in New York since then. He lives upstate New York somewhere. He and I were
1: remained close. We would talk all the time we would have a regular Sunday morning phone conversation for like an hour,
2: every Sunday morning. Yes. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And I started doing these parties at the Soho Grand Hotel,
1: which I had been doing for almost three years, and they started to become very successful with DJs, mud-era DJs, Chris France and Tina Weymouth from Talking Heads, Fab Five Freddy, some of the original Mud Club DJs. Um, They were great nights. Steve was showing up at, Steve was showing up at them and he was always, and then he stopped coming to those. I've tried to reach out to him in the last year, unsuccessfully. And uh that's really all I all I know. yes um, that's yes. really all I know. I mean he's 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 gonna he turns 80. He'll be turning 80 in November, which I mean I'm not a young man anymore. But Steve was a bit older than us then. Steve, I think when I was, you know, when I was working at the mud club, I think Steve was already in his late 30s. And um so, I don't know. I mean, I, I love the guy. He put me on the map. Yes. He, he gave me this dubious, you know, third chapter career that I have. In the sense <laughs> I've written a book. Yes. About what? a job I had 40
0: years ago. Which is amazing. I mean, it is a fantastic book. And it's kind of interesting what you said earlier about something that happened 40 years ago, if I got my maths right. And people are still very interested because I know you brought this amazing book out, and I have to say the photographs in it also add a lot. And then there was oh
1: gosh, yeah,
0: the photograph. And then this guy brought a book out as well, didn't he? With this, oh yeah, which has got I'm not sure what clubs, but again, I mean, people have kind of started going through their archives, and what I think happens is that when things are happening, you just think they're normal then you have to get on with life and do whatever. And then there's a period of time, then you start to look back, not just with rose-tinted sunglasses, but just looking at it a bit differently and thinking, actually, there was some really special stuff and, and sort of analysing I suppose that's what's just happened with, with various things that have, you know, with your book and various other publications and various films that have come out and, and placing it in a sort of, with a cultural context, really, at the time.
1: Absolutely.
0: So you kind of archive it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I collected, I was a hoarder. So I collected and kept everything, you know, from journals to my interview notes for the book to mud club flyers and newsletters from, from 40 plus years ago, to, to everything in between to invitations to other events during that period, whether it be the postcard invitation to invitation to uh Jean Michel's first show first one man show to uh Keith Haring's invitation to the party of life at the Paradise Garage to all of these things and I you know I kept it all safe I archived it and I I my archive is now in the possession of Howell Arts which is that nonprofit whose mission statement is to preserve the culture of the Lower East Side and Lower Manhattan.
2: Yes.
1: And, uh, but I'm glad all that stuff is safe. Absolutely. Because, you know, <laughs> no. I something happens to me and somebody just comes in and throws all that stuff in the trash. Uh,
0: so it's, uh, good. it's good that you've done that. I love it. Yes. It's great. So just last question. I mean, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self starting out, I just wonder what you would have thought, oh, I will just kind of whisper in their ear one little thing just so that, yeah, from what you've experienced and, and, uh, yeah, wisdom that you've developed or gained.
2: Oh, gee, move forward with an open mind, be fearless, don't be afraid to make mistakes and don't be afraid to trip over your own feet
1: and uh try to have a good time when you're doing it
0: yes you know keep smiling um, when you fall smiling keep it going well look this is amazing well thank you ever so much for doing this and when i put it out i'll i can send you a link you know with when i archive And then you can sort of um, put it on various wherever you you know websites or social media. But it's been amazing. And, and like I said, I've I literally only managed to get hold of the book this week, so I've actually there's bits in it which I haven't read. It. But um, I have to say, twenty
1: two different photographers are represented in there, and they're great photographers. Uh, they? There's a picture of me down in the basement of the Mud Club after a rough night, and uh, David. Um, yes, please do send me a link, and I will tell you this sort of as a teaser that I have another project in the works, which I believe you'll definitely want to talk to me about after after the new year. So um, let's leave it at that. Uh,
0: I will. Um, I'll keep you posted on that. Okay. Watch this space. God, well that's brilliant. Look, hopefully, new year. We'll look forward to it, 2021. Thank you so much for doing this. Take care. Well, thank you as well. Take care. See you. You take care too. Bye-bye. And that's how you say goodbye. No, that was me, Dave. He's doing a conversation with Richard Bosch um, talking about The Mud Club. You probably gathered that. Anyway, the book just came out in 2017, The Mud Club. And um, it's available from all good bookshops. Well, probably easier to buy online or order it from a good bookshop um, on Feral House Publishing. So um, do check it out. I bought a copy. And frankly, it sits there on the shelf next to my CBGB's ones with great enthusiasm. Anyway, look, I'm babbling. Look, have a great week. If you do want to contact me, God knows why, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. And uh, yes, I'll be there. Keep it nice and positive. Also, all these interviews have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's it. That's me. That's done. Have a great week. Stay safe.